On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Lyric, and Lyric was in a toxic relationship with a financial abuser. It's a story of persistence, creating narratives, peer pressure, and the value of letting go. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. This is a podcast that gives a voice to survivors of toxic relationships. I am Brandon Chadwick, but my friends call me Chad, and thanks for tuning into this episode. So what is a narcissist, you may ask? Well, for the purposes of this podcast, we refer to a narcissist as anyone who has displayed a pattern of behavior that shows a limited capacity to appreciate others' perspectives. It is that simple. Now, if you have not been to our website recently and you want to be a guest on our show, go to NarcissistApocalypse.com, top of the page, and there's a button there that says Guest Form. Click that button, and away we will go from there. But another way to be on our show is to be on our Letters to My Narcissist compilation episode. For that, also go to NarcissistApocalypse.com and click on a button on the side of the page that says Send Voicemail. You read your letter into that thing. It records up to five minutes. If you need more than that, you press it twice. It records up to 10. We are accumulating these letters for my Letters to My Narcissist compilation, episode number six. And if you do not want to read the letter yourself and you want me or my old pal, Melissa, to read the letter for you, please send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com and put Letters to My Narcissist in the subject line. And everyone, uh, what else do we have for you here? You know, we have a Patreon, and our Patreon soon will be, be will be becoming a community social network. Uh, we'll be moving there on September 1st, officially. We're going to be porting people over from our Patreon there a little bit sooner. So if you want to join our Patreon uh, right now to get extra episodes and support, including our Zoom support groups, you know, join our Patreon now, and we'll probably port you over in the next 10 days to our new site. And it's really exciting stuff. It's all community-based. We're going to not just be there to support each other. We're going to be making friends, discussing all different types of things. We have really uh, so many new creative ideas that are going to be going on in that little forum that we're creating that new social network you know we're gonna we're gonna have a lot of interesting things like no contact uh ceremonies closure ceremonies so many different types of ceremonies we're going to be doing i'm going to be there everyone on the patreon is going to be there who's going to be moving over there will be no thing soon that is called patreon we're going to be a community just sending it out there but if you want to kind of be with us uh you know one of our guinea pigs of the first two weeks working at the kinks Join our Patreon today and get the benefits there. And now, uh, you know, this show is not possible without the support of everyone out there. And it's also not possible without the support of our weekly sponsors. And last week, our weekly sponsor was Ryan. The week before that, our weekly sponsor was JJ. 
Before that, our weekly sponsor was Fern. And this week, our weekly sponsor is Opal. And without people like Opal and the previous folks, you know, our show is made on a shoestring budget. And, you know, with the help of these people and maybe more people in the future, uh, we'll be able to uh, take this support create better support services and reach a larger audience and in turn help thousands and thousands of more people than we are right now. So if you find this show valuable and you want to be a sponsor of our show, please do reach out to me at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com and we'll discuss you being a sponsor of our show uh, next week or, or the weeks to come. And a big shout out once again to Opal, who was also a guest on our last week's show. She is this week's sponsor. And I really want to thank her from the bottom of my heart for uh, sponsoring this episode and, you know, helping uh, thousands of people. So thank you so much. And now, before I get to this episode with Lyric, this episode is interesting and that is because a lot of the times we hear about boundaries and how most of the people on the show didn't have good boundaries kind of coming in or maybe you know their boundaries were beaten down pretty well at the beginning of the relationship and in this case with lyric in my opinion she had tremendous boundaries and you know and her future abuser was just so persistent. And I said many times before, persistence pays off. And in this case, it really did. And, you know, it just shows you that someone even with good boundaries, with this example of this story, that it can happen to anyone. And... Uh, with the persistence that went on here, you know, just kind of was there, was there, was there, was there. And kind of that just slowly steamrolled over those boundaries. It wasn't uh, a giant push. It was kind of subtle as it kind of happened. Just, you know, you take that one inch at a time. So I don't want to give too much away of the story, but, you know, I think this is just a, a good example for everyone that this can happen to anyone. And Lyric was a very successful person financially. And this person, you know, had money signs in their eyes and, 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 and did their thing. So thank you for, for Lyric for sharing her story, uh, for helping so many people. And now without further ado, here is my episode with Lyric. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. With me today, I have Lyric. How are you? I am doing well today. Hope that you are. Well, I am doing well. We talked for a little bit before we started here, and we, we had a pretty good time. What did you say? I would say that, yes. Yes. Pleasure to meet you. It was a pleasure to meet you. And today, you're going to help a lot of people. You're going to tell your story. You grew up, uh, you were abused growing up, you were sexually abused growing up, and you grew up uh, with nothing, and you became something of yourself, became very, very successful, and then, unfortunately, you met someone who was 
an abuser and a financial abuser. And that is going to be your story today. And we're going to discuss a lot of stuff, including attorneys and court everything. So, you know, I'm uh, I'm sorry this happened to you. Unfortunately, this happened to you, but today you're going to help a lot of people. So from the bottom of my heart, Lyric, thank you for being here. And now, without further ado, the floor is now yours. Okay. Thank you, Brandon, for an opportunity to share my story uh, with you as well as with your listeners. I have benefited tremendously from uh, your listeners sharing their stories. So I'm hoping that I could pay that forward today and sharing my story with, uh, with others. So I guess I'll start at the beginning and just share a little bit about my childhood. So my mom was a single mother. Uh, she had four children. Uh, I was born in the southern parts of the United States. Uh, and around the first grade or around the age of six, we moved to uh, the city of Detroit, actually, in the northern parts of the uh, United States. Um, moving to the city uh, from the south to the north, uh, you know, obviously, my mother left her support group uh, in the southern uh, parts of the country, and she had no support uh, in, in Detroit. Uh, so consequently, without support, we had very little resources. She had very little resources, so we were poor. We lived on welfare from time to time. Uh, occasionally, my mother would work, but that was for short periods of time. So, of course, the stress of having four children in a city that uh, she didn't know very many people, very limited resources, um, you know, there was, there was difficult times for us. Um, you know, there was times when we didn't have food, we didn't have utilities, uh, we didn't have proper clothing for the, the intense weather. Uh, but, you know, she tried to do the best that she could with the limited resources that she had and the, the times in which she would work. So consequently, there was uh, physical and verbal abuse that I experienced as a child uh, from my mother, um, not only as a child, but also a teenager. And occasionally, even as an adult, she tried to continue to verbally abuse me. Um, when my mother did work, uh, we were, of course, left home uh, to really fend for ourselves uh, during the days or you know, the times that she was away. I've just come to realize that based on the limited resources that my mother had and obviously the challenges that she experienced in her childhood, that she probably had some mental uh, issues that, you know, she was dealing with and those mental issues were, you know, a result of how she treated and how she raised her kids. So as a child, I was pretty fearful of my mother, fearful of adults, fearful of speaking up. There was consequences to speaking up. So a lot of times I was afraid. Um, the Just some examples of the abuse that I experienced from my mother was, you know, she would often call uh, me names, and, and not just me, but this was my siblings as well, but I'm just really sharing my story. Uh, she would call me names. She would 
say that I would just be a failure in life, that she couldn't wait until I grew up and had children and learned a lesson. Uh, she would often say that she hated the day she ever had me, that she wished she would have flushed me down the toilet, uh, you know, just really hurtful things um, and things that, you know, I, I could still hear those words at times in my adult life, but, you know, I've just come to push those aside and, and push through them. So a lot of my childhood, I was, um, I was ashamed of, you know, my mother. I was ashamed of, uh, you know, not having, uh, you know, food or toys or, you know, the things that my friends had, just really ashamed of those things. There was times when, of course, I would go to school and wouldn't have food to eat for lunch, or there was times where... Um, my mother may have had money uh, to pay for a field trip, but by the time the field trip came up, she didn't have money to uh, provide for lunch or anything to eat during that field trip. So I would go on a field trip with no food. And um, so that was that was pretty hard. But there were some positives. There wasn't everything wasn't all negative. There are some positives that I do attribute to my mother, and that was, you know, her commitment or her just really um, her her desire to see her kids succeed. She wanted us, I feel inherently, to have a better life than what she had. Um, she also instilled in us the the commitment and the belief that there was a God and that if we believed in him, that, you know, our life would turn out okay. Um, so, you know, I just talked about being very shy and very quiet as a child. I hardly ever would assert myself or speak up, um, you know, especially in situations that were public type situations or with adults, I just didn't speak up for myself. So um, because I didn't speak up and because I felt unprotected, I felt like I was open for sexual abuse. And I had an uncle, my mother's brother, he would come to visit us uh, occasionally uh, in Detroit and on occasions that he would come to visit, he would fondle me uh, inappropriately. Um, there was never any penetration, but it was just always, you know, fondling and just it just made me feel awful. Uh, and also, I had brothers who had friends that was um, abusive to me in that way as well. But I never spoke up. I never told anyone. Um, and honestly, your listeners are probably <laughs> some of the first people that are hearing about this situation that um, have happened to me. My mother never knew my brothers to this day. To this day, my mother doesn't know. And to this day, my brothers don't know either. Um, so, you know, my... My shyness, I think, just really set me up for uh, the situation that I currently 
about myself and and not defending myself. So that was my childhood, pretty uh, poor, just, you know, just not a lot of resources, just a lot of lack. Um, but knowing that my way out was education and hard work. Uh, so I did have that at least going for myself. So you were able to find your way out of being poor your whole entire life. You uh, got an education. You got a really good job. You were making your way in the world. You were, you know, you're a saver. You're financially responsible, and you're doing everything right. Uh, are there things, you know, before we get into the relationship with the person in question? Are there things that you know when you were younger? that were survival kind of techniques as far as, you know, maybe shutting down uh, that you kind of went through um, that eventually stopped serving you when you were older? Well, I, for me, the, the survival techniques that I would use was to avoid I would say that I am an avoider, and I still have the tendency now to avoid uh, certain situations, certain people, certain conversations. So I would shut down and completely avoid those uh, topics or those hard uh, places and hard conversations. So um, to your point, yes, I did uh, make it out of the inner city and I went to college uh, locally, did not go away because, you know, I just simply didn't know what going away to college was, but I knew that I wanted to go to college and I wanted to, I wanted to get a college uh, education and I wanted to make something of myself. So I knew that that was important to do. So um, just fast forward to adults and, you know, starting to date, um, I was actually engaged three times prior to uh, meeting my NARC. Um, so the first engagement that I had was to a guy, and I was relatively young at that point, in my early 20s, perhaps about 22, 23 years old, I met a guy Really nice guy, very charismatic, fun to be with, and it was just that. Our our relationship was fun, but I was very mature at that point, and I knew that he lacked um, discipline, he lacked maturity, and I knew that eventually that relationship would not last, so I broke that off. Um, the next person that I met was a guy that uh, went to my church. Um, I was very involved in my church. Um, I, you know, volunteered. He volunteered. We met. We started dating. He was from a really good family that I admired. Um, he was the first guy that I met or the first person that I met that offered a level of protection and I felt safe with. Um, so we dated for about a year and then we got engaged and we went through premarital counseling at our church. We got our church's, you know, blessing to get married. And then shortly after that, he ghosted me. So I would say within about 
three weeks after our premarital counseling and us getting the blessings from the church, he called me over to his house and he sat me down and he said that he needed to share something with me. Uh, he had given blood at his workplace and he got a call from the Red Cross that his blood tested positive for HIV. Um, I felt like if he did not know that he was HIV positive, I feel like he knew what his lifestyle had been uh, that could have led to uh, this particular diagnosis, and he did not share that. So he was presenting himself in a completely different way of what his life was like, and then everything kind of came out. That is correct. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes, that is correct. I don't want anyone thinking that you're a cold, heartless person here. So that's oh, why I'm no. asking. Oh, gosh, no. Um, actually, even after he told me that he was HIV positive, I stayed around as his friend. Uh, he did not share it with any of his friends. He did not even share it with his family until his health began to decline to the point where I insisted that he talk to his mother and father and, and brothers about it because I did not want them, if something would have happened to him, I didn't want them to blame me for not telling them that he was you know, dealing with this. So I was there until the, the point of his death. So I did not just drop him cold. I was there to support him all the way through, knowing that, you know, this person had basically deceived me and was willing to put my life at risk. Uh, I, I was still there. And the third one. The third one, um, we met at work, a uh, really nice guy, um, but he was a little, um, he was immature as well. Uh, he was a, I would call a mama's boy, where his mother pretty much ran his life, and and I saw that, and his mother wanted to basically run my life as well, and I was not going to have that. So um, we ended up breaking things off and, you know, not moving forward to, to getting married. So I say all of that. I wanted to share those, those stories with you to just really let you know that I had really high standards for myself and high standards for people that I was dating. Well, um, I, I'm not going to say that. Uh, well, I'm going to say, yes, you do have that. But you also here have, when something happens, you have boundaries. And when those boundaries or, or those, uh, or the value systems that you have in place aren't met, you do what you need to do to have those met and you did it in in the right way. So right now you're going to be going into a situation where you're acting pretty uh, pretty well. Like you're you're healthy like going into this. Yeah, I read that and that's how I was feeling. I was feeling pretty good about, you know, my decisions, the choices that I was making and dating. Um but, you know, life's continues to happen. I continue to get older and I, you know, was 
getting pressure from my friends that maybe I was just a little too hard on guys, you know, maybe I should just relax a little bit of my boundaries, my standards, and, you know, otherwise I would find myself to be, you know, older and um, without a spouse. And here Um, is the belief system that is going to be implanted in your head that is going to be your downfall. Absolutely my downfall. All that right. is sure. <laughs> Give it to us. Let's yes. let's hear it. Where did you meet him? So I met my narc. Um, we actually met in high school. Um, we didn't have the same circle of friends, but I knew of him. Right. So he was the captain of the football team. He was very popular and in school. And after graduating from high school, I would hear uh, from time to time from different folks about, you know, the successes that he was having in his career. Um, But I didn't really think too much of it because, you know, he wasn't in my circle. So fast forward a few years. um, In 2011, that was our 30-year high school reunion. So there enters my narc. I was engaging in conversations with people and, you know, just surprisingly having a really good time talking and catching up with folks. And I looked up and there was the narc. um, And he was just kind of, you know, off on the side, just staring me down, which I thought was pretty weird. So initially, or Ultimately, he came over and joined the conversation with the other folks that um, that I was talking to. Uh, so eventually, you know, he says, hello, Lyric, haven't seen you in a while. How's things going? And, you know, I just started to engage him in a conversation. Uh, and actually, when I saw him, I thought he was someone else. And, you know, I said to that person, oh, I understand that you're a police officer now. And he says, you know, no, that's not me. So finally, he reminded me of who he was. So um, in the meantime, folks were coming up to us and, you know, coming up to me and to him, and they wanted to take pictures, and everybody has their cell phones out, and they're taking pictures. So immediately, he started, you know, just taking selfies with he and I and taking pictures of me, and I'm like, this guy is really weird. Like, what are you doing So he just continued to take pictures all night of, you know, the two of us or with me and other people. And I just thought it was pretty bizarre. The other thing is um, he was apparently very drunk and I am not a favor. I'm not a fan of, you know, folks that drink, especially to the point where they just have no control over it. And that's what I was observing in him. Um, There was one guy at the reunion that um, I knew pretty well in high school. That guy, he asked me if he could have my business card. And I gave him my card. And the narc was standing there. And he says, oh, you're passing out cards. Do I not get one? And so, you know, out of, you know, me being a little embarrassed, I 
handed him one of my business cards and he took it and put it in his top pocket. Um, so it was almost time. It was like my time limit was coming up, but the, the group wanted to take a group photo with everybody that was in attendance. So I, you know, went on the floor to take the picture and the narc is again, right beside me. He had latched on to me. He was putting his arms around my waist and I gave him a look like, take your hands off of me. And, you know, he was like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I apologize. I apologize. So after the group picture, I, you know, was telling some folks that I was leaving and the narc offered to walk me to my car, which I told him that wasn't necessary because I had valet part, but he insisted. So he walked me out to the down in the, uh, the lobby to the valley parking. And I really thought that that was the end of it. Well, on my business card, I had my work cell phone number and not my personal cell phone number. But all of my customers, if my customers needed to get in touch with me, my customers had my personal cell phone. So I never really used my business cell phone at all. A couple of weeks later, I turned on my business cell phone and uh, I realized that he had been calling me for two weeks and I did not know it. So out of being courteous, I called him back and he proceeded to tell me that he had been calling me. Uh, he wanted to apologize for his behavior that night. Um, but you know, he couldn't get in touch with me. So he said that he basically had given up, but you know, he says, right when I gave up, I wanted to try again to, um, to get in touch with you. And so, you know, he says, so now you're calling. So I told him, you know, no need to apologize that, you know, everything was fine. Uh, but he insisted that he wanted to make up for that night that, you know, he doesn't drink, that he wasn't drunk, that um, he only had one drink with a friend of his uh, that was in town for the reunion. And I told him, I said, well, that did not appear to be a one drink behavior to me. And he says to me, well, I don't drink. None of my friends would say that I drink. I have five sisters and I could call them each right now and put them on the phone and they would all vouch and tell you that I do not drink. And so I said, well, you don't have to get anyone on the phone. I know what I saw and I'm not interested in, you know, anybody to drink. So he says, well, okay, that's fine, but I really want to make it up to you because I feel like, you know, I left a bad impression and I don't want to do that. So I would like to catch up with you, see how, you know, things are just really to, you know, know where you are, what's happening in your life and so on and so forth. So he was persistent to 
taking me out to lunch. Now, the interesting thing is he did not live, we did not live in the same city. So he lived an hour and a half away, away from the city in which um, I lived in and where the reunion was. So I told him, I said, well, how are we going to meet for lunch when you live so far away? He says, well, you know, don't worry about that. I'll take care of the details. Just, you know, let me know that you're interested in going. So reluctantly, I agreed to have lunch with him. On the day that we were supposed to have lunch, um, I had a series of things that was happening in my home for repairs. So lunch turned into dinner. Um, so we meet for dinner. Before you go to dinner, I just want to say to everyone, persistency pays off here. Like he, he, his his persist. I mean, your boundaries were were good. You didn't want to meet him. His persistency wore you down. And that is the yeah. That's a pattern that becomes pretty obvious in our relationship as well. So um, we meet for dinner on uh, that Saturday night. And it's interesting because when we got to the restaurant, I really just felt that I'm having dinner with a person from high school, and that was going to be the end of it. Well, after dinner, um, you know, we were going to go our separate ways. I drove and met him there. We did not ride together. Um, so I told him that, um, you know, thank you for dinner and that I was going to leave. He says, well, my mother would never allow me to, or my mother would be upset with me if she knew that I met someone for dinner and did not see them home. Right. So I'm like, no, I'm perfectly fine. I could get home by myself. And he says, well, no, I don't have to. I just need to follow you just to make sure that you get in the house. I don't need to go in or anything like that. Right. So I thought, well, OK, but that's pretty nice to make sure that, you know, I get in the house. OK, you could follow me to my house. So he follows me to my house and. I, you know, get out, I go in my garage and, you know, let the garage door down and he calls me on the phone and he says, hey, um, is it possible that, you know, we could just continue the conversation? And I said, well, I thought we were done with the conversation. So he says, well, you know, there's just a couple more things that I just want to share and, you know, just basically worked his way into my house. So I let him in and we sat and we talked uh, for a couple of hours, just sitting in my living room, and eventually he left. So um, soon after, he began to just really call me every single day and sometimes twice a day. Um, he started to text message me regularly. Um, he he would come to my city on the weekends to visit family and friends and eventually make his way to my house or make his way to inviting me out uh, for dinner or for an event. By Thanksgiving, he came to my house uh, after Thanksgiving dinner was over and my family and I were just hanging out. 
he came over to my house and he uh, sat at the table and talked to my sister-in-law for hours about how he really wanted to pursue a relationship with me. He wanted what I had. He loved my character. He loved what I stood for. He loved my faith, my beliefs. And he was in pursuit of that. And he felt like I could help him along that path. So shortly after, uh, after that conversation with my sister-in-law, I would say he started in heavy. I received flowers all the time. He was constantly wanting to go to any church event that was happening in, at my church. He wanted to be involved in any type of event that I was doing with my friends, whatever I was doing on the weekends. He just wanted to be a part of that. He he's a very he's a he's a charmer. He's very charismatic. He works a room whenever, you know, he would be involved with my family, my friends. He would just be the, the, the best person to be around and to be with. And everybody was really enamored with him. Everybody was really impressed with him and thought he is a good guy. So here is a guy who found an opening in that door, kept it open, didn't fully get in yet, made sure that door still had a crack of it open and just continued to talk to you on the other side of that door while his foot was stuck in it and kept on going and going and going and going until it got open a little bit more, was able to, you know, charm the people that were with you on the other side of the door, which then gets you right here probably to open up that door a little bit more because all of a sudden other people in a way are vouching for him or at least giving him this positive spin, which you did not have before about him at all. And he's just really persistent here. Your boundaries have been top notch of what you were trying to do. This guy's just relentless, and you grew up having trouble asserting yourself and everything, and you are here, but he really, you know, did a job on your assertiveness or at least trying to speak up. He just bulldozed over it. Absolutely, and, you know, and I, and I also feel like he had, I mean, not that my friends and my family made him aware, but they were also in support of him as well. And I was hearing from my friends that, okay, you're getting older. The choices are getting limited for you. You've been too hard on guys over the years. Why don't you give this guy a try? He seems like a really nice guy. You know, he's a single father raising his son. He really wants the things that you want. He's making an effort to come to your city and do things with you. Whereas, you know, I would hear from my friends, the other people that you had dated recently weren't even trying to do that. So, you know, there was a lot of, I felt like, um, pushing or encouragement from my friends 
to give him a try as well. So I was getting it on both ends, you know, from him and from my friends. And I really just started to doubt myself and doubt, you know, my standards and my, my boundaries that I had. Uh, so I relinquished and I said, okay, I will, um, I will give in. So this is kind of where I feel the mirroring started as well, where the things that was so important to me became so important to him as well. And that was, you know, my faith was really important. I volunteered at my church. I was a volunteer in the community. And he just, oh, wow, that's what I want. That's what I've always wanted to do. So all of a sudden, he starts to go to a church in his city and talk about what was happening there at his church and what he missed that church was having, you know, inviting me to come to his city to experience those events. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. So he says, this is what I've always wanted someone to help me to get on this path of, you know, doing the right thing and being this stellar person, right? Um, and then the other thing that, if I didn't mention, he's also, uh, he was divorced, and he had been divorced at that point for about seven or eight years. Uh, he was raising his son, uh, who was a preteen at that time. I think his son was probably around the eighth grade at the time that we met. So he shared with me at some point that he wanted to be very cautious as to when I was allowed to meet his son. Um, he shared that he had exposed his son to many women uh, in the past and recently, and he did not want uh, his son to have that image of him, right? So... Now that he met me and he knew that I would be around a, a long time, he wanted to make sure that, you know, he took the proper amount of time before introducing me to his son. Well, that lasted all of a week because the next week he wanted me to meet his son. <laughs> so he, he's uh, setting it up in your head that he's this responsible dad. He wants to be this type of guy. He's putting that in your head, and then he contradicts himself the, the next week. Do you notice the contradiction the next week, or, or is it just something like uh, that you just pass off? No, of course. And I said, well, wow, that was a, a quick change. And he said to me, well, you're going to be coming to, I was going to come to a church event that they were having at his church. And he says, well, since you're going to be here, I'm kind of torn as to, because I want him to go to the church event as well. Uh, so I'm torn between, you know, having to go to the church event multiple times, once with you and once with him. So I'm just thinking that we'll just all go together and you can meet him, you know, in that situation. So, yes, I did call it out, but again, um, you know, I, at this point, I was really just hooked in. I thought that, you know, he was a nice guy, and he was fun to be with, and I'm listening to my friends, and I am like, okay, no problem. So you 
are dating him. You start to date him for around two years. And, uh, you know, within that time of that two-year period, because it goes longer than that, but within that two-year period, uh, when does uh, real kind of devaluation and things start to begin? So the real devaluation didn't really happen, or at least I didn't notice it happening until much later, like after we got engaged. Um, There was a series of events, you know, like I said, he was a single father, he was divorced. Um, We lived in different cities, so I didn't see him regularly to really know a lot about him. He worked for the university uh, in his city. Um, He was, he had a job working for like one of the, I, I believe it was like a nonprofit that provided services for the organist for the university and um it wasn't the job that he wanted so he would talk about not being happy with the job but it was what he could find right now and he started to talk about how you know he believed that god would bless him with a better job um and that you know one day that he would be back at the financial level that he was at prior to getting a divorce. When he got a divorce that he lost a tremendous amount of money, that he was building himself back up, that, you know, he wanted to provide a great future for his uh, future spouse. He wanted to get married. He wanted to, you know, he wanted to never get a divorce again. He wanted to share or he wanted to be an example to his family, his friends that his family did not have strong marriages. So it was a lot of that. Um, I wouldn't say that it was out and out devaluation uh, as much as it was just the manipulation, just the, the tactics that he was doing to hook me in, right? So it's still a lot of the love bombing. Um, so things really don't start happening then or start going really downhill until you get married. So what happens right when you get married? I assume it happens right after it happens. Absolutely. So fast forward, as you say, we did get married. Um so we go on a honey, we had a, a beautiful wedding, uh, but leading up to the, the, the engagement, he lost his job. We got married in July. He lost his job in December of the, the previous year. And he, um, he just, it, it, things just really started to go downhill for him financially. Uh, he lost his job. He, I don't really know why he lost his job. He didn't really give me a, a good answer as to why that happened. Um, his car was repossessed. Um, he, you know, he would just basically position it or spin it as ju- just being just hard luck, right? Just. He wasn't going to sweat it because he knew that God would turn it around for him. But immediately, so I went on and got married. 
uh, he didn't have money to even buy or rent when well, no, he bought his tux. He didn't have money to buy his tux. He didn't have money to buy the, the socks that I wanted them to wear for the wedding. He didn't have money to buy his guys their gifts. So I ended up buying and, you know, providing all of that. Um, and I was really, I, I was so disappointed with myself for where I was at that point because that was completely against what I believed. That was completely against my values. I did not share that with anyone. Nobody knew that I was footing the entire cost of the wedding. Uh, the day before our wedding, his family had came in to town from uh, Georgia and he has a pretty big family in Georgia and they came into town and he basically disappeared and, you know, went off and was doing things with them. When he showed up to my house, I asked him where had he been and why was he not helping me with the final arrangements and the final things that need to be done. And I pointed my finger at him and I told him this is unacceptable. And when I pointed my finger at him, he slapped my hand. And this was the day before we got married. And I was in disbelief. I was so, I, I just, I could not believe that that had happened. But I proceeded to get married the next day. So we go on our honeymoon and immediately he started to just launch in on me. He basically was telling me that he now owned me, that whatever he wanted to do sexually that I was obligated to do, um, he he started to just pick away at, you know, just criticize little things that I was doing. Um, we spent, we still live separately. After we got married, I lived in my city. He lived in his city. And the reason for that for me was because we spent so much time arguing and so much time, uh, and he didn't have a stable job at that point. Two weeks before we got married, he did get a job, but it wasn't a stable job. It wasn't a career job. It was just something to fill in, to provide for him and his son. And I didn't feel comfortable with him moving in with me uh, and me 100% supporting him and his son. Sorry, I, I'm going to stop right here for one second. So before you got married things were rocky yes okay yeah so things were and i'm not going to say that they were i mean they weren't great but they weren't horrible either and i just really attributed them to just a part of being in a relationship you know, we would have arguments over things but you know, I didn't think that they were deal breakers, right? So it wasn't as if everything was oh so great, but it wasn't as if it was like, okay, I need to cut things off from this guy. But, but um, so at the same time, though, like right here, you, you got married 
you're okay not living with them, and you also are afraid to like fully share expenses or not expenses, but you're you're afraid of something to not fully go in on uh, you know you guys being one giant uh, revenue stream, if that's the best way to put it. Yeah, so at that point, because of all the the money that I had put out for the wedding and the things that I had done for the wedding, I just kind of felt that this guy, he would be okay with me continuing to pay for everything. You know, if he moved to my city, that meant that he would not have a job. He would have to look for a job, and I would be taking care of him and his son. I just did not want to do that. And the other thing was his son was at this point, he's in high school, he plays high school football, and he had the potential to earn a a scholarship to to play football in college. And I didn't want to disrupt that, right? But you saw this coming. Yes. You, You knew this was coming. You just didn't know how to stop it. Yes. And again, that goes back to not asserting myself, not speaking up, and, you know, just being afraid to call it like I saw it, right? So, you know, we get back from our honeymoon, and uh, he started to just really chip away at, you know, being more critical, uh we were, the pressures of us being apart was there. Um, you know, we, I, we both would try to make the best of being together on the weekends, but that was putting a lot of pressure on our relationship. I, at the time, I got gotten a promotion at work, and I did not work in the state that I lived in. I worked in another state, so I traveled a lot. Um And that was putting a lot of strain on me physically, mentally, and emotionally. So on the weekends, when we would get together, because I was exhausted, uh, and and just because of the sheer fact that, you know, we didn't see each other, our relationship wasn't coming together, we spent a considerable amount of time arguing. Uh, If he came to my house uh, we would argue if I went to his house, I would, ar- we would argue. And I just felt honestly, it was still a, it was still a good arrangement for me because if I was at his place and we were arguing, I knew that I could leave and go home and have some peace. Right. Uh, whereas I couldn't have that with him. So that still gave me that bit of comfort knowing that, okay, I may argue with you all day Saturday, but I'm going to get up Sunday morning and I'm going home. So right after, um, so, you know, we're back from the honeymoon and, you know, things are starting to not feel right to me, right? The arguings have escalated, uh, the pressures have escalated, and I recommended to him that we go into to a counselor, And, you know, just start out with, okay, what's happening and let's get this thing on track, back on track if it's off track. And I didn't want it to get so far down the path that there was like a point of no return. 
So the minute we go into the counselor's office, this is where the real devaluation started. We go into the counselor's office, and this was with my church, and the counselor looked at him and said, okay, so what brings you in today? And he says, Lyric has inappropriate relationships with men, other men, and I don't know how to handle that. And I sat there in shock. This was the first time I've ever heard this from him, and I had no idea what he was talking about. So he continued to tell him that I had inappropriate relationships with uh, men at work, men at church, that the night that I was, that the night that we met at the class reunion, I was meeting with a married man. I could not believe that he was saying these things. Um, and the, the counselor uh, was shocked. And he told him, he says, this is not the person that we have known. Uh, and I really feel that you don't know her. You haven't taken the time to know her. I feel like the counselor just really was on my side because they knew me. They knew my character. And this was just totally out of left field for them to hear something like this about me. But I just was in disbelief that this guy would even say these things about me. Um, so after we left the counseling, that him calling me inappropriate, him creating a narrative around family, friends, and my boss that I worked with and have worked with for years saying that, you know, I was inappropriate with him. Uh, I discovered that he had taken my cell phone and he uh, went into my cell phone and he made, uh, he took pictures of all of my conversations with my boss uh, and he was creating his narrative on from those cell phone messages that my boss was sending me. Uh, and no matter what I said, it didn't matter to him. He was convinced that I was a liar and that he had the truth, and he started to call me liars. He, uh, It was like on a daily basis, I was a liar, uh, I could not tell the truth. He did not believe me. And I just could not believe this was happening. And, you know, I was so, so disappointed in that I waited all of my life to get married. And, you know, this is who I married, somebody, someone who feels that I would be an adulterer or that I would be inappropriate with men, especially married men. Um, I, I just cannot believe it. So, um, the pastor, he asked me or asked us to make another appointment with him, uh, to come in after he gave him some advice on what he needed to do as a man to, um, you know, to take care of my heart. And if he took care of my heart, he wouldn't be worried about other guys. 
And he absolutely, you know, said okay to the pastor. He sat there, you know, nodding and yes, 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 I'll do all those things. But the minute we got back to my house, he started back in with, you know, me being inappropriate and wanting to give examples of, you know, how he uh, observed me uh, talking to a volunteer at church and why did I talk to that male volunteer and not to his wife? I, he was just creating all types of stories. So, so, so he's causing all of this trouble as far as all of these accusations. And you're concentrating on all of these accusations that are going on because they're just flying fast and furious. And, and in a way, that's kind of a little bit of a swerve because in reality here... He's not doing much. He's not working. You're fitting, footing the bill on a lot of things. You're paying for his life. So he's found a, a really interesting situation here where he wedged him. He got your card when he was at that first uh, reunion. And he, uh, here's a successful person some light bulb went off in this person's head and and concocted whatever is happened here. He's wedged himself in here, married to you. Now he's doing all of this crazy accusations while he's getting to live the life that he wants to live, not working, freeloading, and he's putting a, so much on you, he's still getting away with doing that. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, there's some there's some other things that was happening as well in terms of, you know, him losing his job. He um, eventually he was evicted from his apartment. And this was um, uh, this was before we got married. And I think or yeah, I think it was before we got married. He was evicted from his apartment. But by the time we got married, I was signing a lease for him and his son to live in a new apartment. So all the while this is going on, you're right. He is benefiting from me financially because, you know, he's living in a different city. I signed the lease, although he has a, you know, somewhat of a job making a little bit of money, he could pay for that rent. Um, But I was putting like all of the activities on the weekends and, you know, the other things that were going on, I definitely was doing that. And now he was calling me inappropriate. He was, you know, calling me a liar and doing these other verbally abusive things that I just could not believe was happening. Um, So eventually you get relocated from your job to another town. So what happens after that? So um, eventually, I um, I do get relocated, um, and at the time, um, you know, we still weren't living together. By this time, we were married for two years, and we still weren't living together. Um, my company relocated me to uh, to the to the corporate head headquarter, and he came with me. Um, so this mom- is going to be the first time you're living together. This will be the first time we're living together, right? So this was two years later. And how are you feeling about that uh, when this move happens? Um, 
at this point, I was a little apprehensive because, again, we would be relocating on my company, relocating us, and him not having a job. Um, he asked that I require my company to help him find uh, employment in our new city. Um, but that wasn't, you know, part of the services that they offered in terms of the relocation. So we moved into corporate housing for uh, about six months. Uh, and during that time, I was, you know, we were looking for a house. But the arguing was so intense. It was every day. If we were not talking it was a mere, if, if we were if we were talking to each other, we were arguing. I I was constantly feeling as if I was defending myself over every single thing. Um, I couldn't do anything right. I couldn't do my job right. He wanted to tell me how to do my job, what to do when I went to work, what I should say, how I should talk to my boss, what I how I should advocate for myself. It was like, you know, I didn't have a mind to think that, you know, he just wanted to tell me everything and what I needed to do. So, um, so before we continue, at this point of your relationship, you know, in this two years since you've been married, only bad things have been really going on. That's correct, yes. Where are you mentally here as far as I want to give up? What's is like the idea that, oh, I got married, I can't get divorced taking over here. I have to give this a try. Uh, you know, what's kind of going through your head that is keeping you here right now? Well, I don't think I was thinking that I couldn't get a divorce. I was thinking that I did not want to get a divorce. And I was embarrassed by all of this as well, because, you know, my family and my friends, they were so excited for me to get married. And they really thought that this was a great guy. And I had not shared any of this any things that I was going through, I had not shared any of that with anyone. So on the outside looking in, folks were thinking that things were really good between us. And when I got an opportunity to relocate, they were, everyone was really excited for us. And, you know, again, I kept it all under wraps. So I was thinking that, I just wanted to do counseling. I just wanted to get us help so that we could get beyond this and never have to expose it. So and- so here's a question for you. I'm going off script. Not that we had a script, but, you know, here you have a situation where you're being abused and you're not saying anything. And when you were little, you were being abused sexually. And you didn't say anything. So, you know, the motivation for you for both was, you know, I, I, that I'm not sure, but is it because you didn't want to burden anyone with your problems or what was going on? Um, did you not think that this was worthy of being told? Is there, is, is, is there something that's, uh, uh, that connects both of them or are they separate? 
I just feel like it was, I feel like, I don't know. I, that's a really great question. And I would have to think about that, but honestly, it was more, I, I just, I could just sense this deep sense of embarrassment, you know, this deep sense of shame. And so perhaps the shame was a part of what was happening as a child and not speaking up then and not, you know, having the courage or the really the know-how to say anything. And I felt, I, I just felt those feelings when these situations were happening. And the next situation that I wanted to talk about was really that turning point. Um, it was right after the new year in 2017, uh, January 3rd, actually, his son was there visiting and we were still in corporate apartment. So it was a one bedroom apartment and his son was sleeping right outside the bedroom door. And we woke up. Uh, I would say, you know, I'm going to say maybe six or seven o'clock AM and we were arguing about what I have no idea, but he, at that point he was going through this period of telling me to shut up. Like I didn't have a right to speak or to let my voice be heard. Now, by this time I'm trying to assert myself where I can but only to be told, you know, shut up. So at this point, he tells me this morning, that particular morning to shut up. I pointed my finger at him and I told him, I said, I've said to you, stop telling me to shut up. He took my finger. He bent it back so hard that, you know, it, it was painful, obviously. And I took my free hand to push him and he took his hand and hit me across the head. I knew then that this is it. I, I cannot, I will not be in this type of situation. I got up, I got in my car when you know, nine, 10 o'clock rolled around. I called an attorney and I made an appointment that day to go in and talk to someone, talk to an attorney. And the attorney, based on all the information and the, the things that I shared with her, she recommended at that point that I pursue separation leading to divorce. That was the the advice that she gave me, she said, at this point, you have a short-term marriage. It's not going to hurt you too bad financially. Uh, you know, he won't be entitled to any type of palimony or alimony, but you should get out now because it's going to get worse for you. And that's what she said. She asked about, you know, of course, the financials. And I told her that, you know, what my situation was like financially, what I had saved, what I worked hard for, shared what his situation was like. And at that time, he was not working because we had relocated. Uh, and she advised me strongly to, uh, to pursue separation and divorce. I did not. I walked away from that meeting 
I tucked the information away, but I didn't act on it. I, I walked away feeling like, oh, she's just being an attorney. You know, she's just wanting money and, you know, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to go and I'm going to say to him, let's go to another counselor. Let's go and get, you know, more help. Thinking that that would help us. Well, that was in 2017. A couple of months later, we found the house eventually, and that was a traumatic process as well. There was a lot of arguing uh, over, you know, what house to move to. And he had no money, no contributions, nothing toward, you know, the house, but he certainly had everything to say about where to move and neighborhoods and all of that. And it really wasn't about what I wanted. It was about what he wanted and how I should spend my money on those things. Um, so we eventually moved into the house and he eventually got a job making, uh, really no money. The arguing uh, just really escalated. Um, the devaluation was certainly there. Uh, I would, we would, we would continue to go to counseling. The counselors would continue to make recommendations on things to do and to try. That would never happen. He would just never do any of those things. So the name calling started up again, you know, it was now I'm selfish. Um, I'm, you know, not about him. I'm not about us. Uh, I just, you know, I'm, I only want to do things for my family. I only uh, want my family to visit. No one from his family could come and visit. And now, those things, of course, was not true. Sure, you know, your family could come, but and my family could come, but they weren't moving in. Um, so those were, you know, some of the issues that we were going through, but consistently, you know, arguing. So in 2019, we, we went to a wedding after coming from a trip to Costa Rica. Um, we, we went to a wedding in Georgia, uh, for his family. And at that wedding, um, it was, he had started to, at this point, pull away from me. Um, you know, there was, we weren't intimate hardly ever. I could count really on my hands on the course of a year, how many times we were intimate as husbands and wife. Um, he would come home from his job and we worked different hours. I worked a normal eight to five. He worked 12 to eight. Uh, and when he come home at 12 PM to 8 PM, when he come home from work, he would sit and watch TV until four, five o'clock in the morning. He would fall asleep on the couch and would never get in bed. So, there was no intimacy at all between us, no communication. Uh, I was trying, you know, with counseling and, you know, trips and trying to patch up the relationship as I knew how. At this point, I started to talk to some 
friends and family a little bit about what was going on, but not sharing too much. And some of the things were not, I wasn't able to hide them any further, right? Uh, so in 2019, we went to Georgia for this wedding, and at the at the uh, wedding, or at the uh, before the wedding, the night before, he goes out with the groom, and whatever they did that night, I don't know. Um, the next day at the wedding, he was very cold. He basically let me sit at the table by myself and you know talk to whoever I found to talk to at the table while he went off and did whatever. Um, when we got back from Georgia, maybe a couple of days later, I went onto his iPad. And the reason why I went onto his iPad was when we were in Costa Rica, he was playing a game on his iPad and I saw that he had a, he had gotten a text message from someone by the name of Ebony. And so when we got back home from the wedding, I wanted to go on his iPad to see, was he communicating with this person, Ebony? Well, what I found was that while we were in Georgia at the uh, for the wedding, the night before the wedding, when he went out with the groom and uh, his cousins, that he went to a strip club and he was communicating, he met a girl at the strip club, and after that night was over, he sent her a message, uh, and in that message, he told her that it was good talking with her, he referred to her as baby, he asked her to call him, um, and I... I was devastated. So that was in August of 2019. I still didn't say anything to him once I saw that uh, text message exchange. In September of 2019, he goes on a guy's trip to Vegas. Now, mind you, he takes his money and does what he wants to do, but he's not contributing to anything in the house or paying any bills. Um, he goes to Vegas for five days with his buddies, and he was gone and did not communicate not one time with me while he was gone. Did not call, did not text message me, no communication at all. When he returned back to the house, um, I told him everything that I had saw in the, you know, the uh, on his iPad. He absolutely denied that she was a stripper, although he had her saved in his contact as her name and the name of the the strip club, uh, but she wasn't a stripper. He said. Um, so at that point, I was, I was pretty much done. Um, I knew that I had to make a decision to move forward with separation. In November, uh, we were back in counseling, and the council had recommended that we go on a date 
and, you know, let the, he said, I want the date to be at least two hours and, you know, all this good stuff sounding. So we go on this date on a Saturday and when we got back and it was like a cooking class that I had arranged for, I paid for, I did all that for, we go on this date, we come back and he goes into another room to watch football. Uh, and I fell asleep in bed and I woke up at, let's say maybe two o'clock in the morning. And I realized that he was not, you know, anywhere near. So I go into the bedroom where he was, at least I thought he was, and he was the near, he was asleep in the bed and I turned the light on and I said to him and I said, so is this what we're doing now? And he immediately started to yell and scream at me and, you know, look at yourself, look at what you do. And I, I just couldn't believe it. So that next day after church is when I gave him papers to separate. Now I had already gone to an attorney back in July and, you know, because I kind of felt this was headed this way. So I had already sought legal counsel and the attorney basically said to me that I should perhaps brace myself for what could be a financial uh, whirlwind, whirlfall for me. Um, but all alone, when we would argue and I would say to him that, you know, we need to separate divorce, he would always tell me, well, you go, you file, I don't want anything from you. You think I want your money and I don't, I don't want anything from you. So I had an attorney to draw up papers with just, you know, us just splitting, you know, just leaving. Um, and in my state, we have to be separated for 12 months before you could file for a divorce. So, um, you know, I had the attorney drop the separation papers just on the, 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 what he was telling me that he didn't want anything from me. And if I wanted a divorce that, you know, he would just sign the papers and we'll be done. I gave him the papers uh, that day, that Sunday after he screamed and yelled and we had that supposedly date night. Um, and when I handed him the papers, Brandon, he said to me, I need to look this over to see if it's in my best interest. And I knew then that I was in for a battle. So at some point, um, I, from the coaxing from my attorney, uh, it was recommended that I hire an attorney, uh, excuse me, hire a private investigator to follow him. Uh, so I did that in 20, 2020, right? Yeah, and, and uh, it was around Thanksgiving of last year, 2020, during COVID. So during COVID, let me back up. When our governor shut down the state here, he left the house for 33 days straight. No communication in 33 days. Um, I could not change the locks because that's the direction that my attorney said. He, because he had not abandoned the house, he had not given any type of indication that he was not coming back. I couldn't change the locks. I could do nothing but wait. 
so he was gone for 33 straight days. Um, at that point, uh, my attorney was still advising me and, uh, and she said, okay, we need to hire a, an investigator to track him. We put a device on his car and we discovered that he was going to spend um, time at his ex-wife's house, which we, when we left, when we left Michigan, she was still there, but somewhere, somehow she made her way uh, close to where we live. And I didn't know about that. At that point, we went full force, my attorney and I, to come up with a separation agreement that we would get him out of the house because he had at that point expressed that the original papers that I had given him was not uh, fair to him and that he wanted to retain an attorney to figure out what would be a, a fair offer for him to pretty much leave. So um, we finally put an offer on the table for him and his attorney. Once he retained an attorney, we put an offer on the table and uh, his attorneys and him came back with an, with a, um, I guess a counter that literally knocked me to the floor. I I was literally on the floor, crawled up. I, I was in a knot over what he was asking for. Uh, because of the private investigator, me hiring a private investigator, I was able to save close to $200,000 with just that alone. And that's, he was looking for that on top of all the other money that he was um, looking to gain. So from a legal standpoint, um, there was not much that I could do outside of the private investigator and not paying alimony. Uh, legally, he was entitled to the equity in the house that I had bought that my company relocated us. He was entitled to my savings, anything that I had saved after we got married. Uh, he was entitled to the earnings in my 401k during the time of our marriage. There was nothing that I could do legally to circumvent that at all. And that was devastating to me. Um, As it must be, because you are a self-made person from coming from extreme poverty to not just earn a living, earn a really good living. And, you know, right now you have this person in your life who has technically really not being in it that long, who is now going to risk your retirement, something you work for your whole entire life. 
and I know that you're still going to be able to retire and you're going to be okay. But this person has really thrown a wrench into when that can happen. That is correct. And he knew it. He knew that the law was on his side and he was going to take full advantage of that. He had no intentions, honestly, of ever being invested in our relationship and in our marriage and, you know, working toward any type of resolution, although that was my intent, that was my goals. I was trying to do everything that I could to preserve and to remain married, but he never had any intentions on doing that. So now that it is all over, Mm -hmm. pretty much since July of, of this year, with all of the, the the setbacks financially that happened, you know, how are you feeling and doing? How do you feel about this situation? Are you someone who is striving for closure? Do you feel duped? Do you have shame about what's happened? Uh, give us kind of a rundown there. Yeah, so I do. I I had a lot of shame initially, um, and again, I wasn't sharing what was happening with a lot of people, but through counseling, through support groups, um, I joined a divorce care support group uh, last year in 2020 during COVID. I started seeing a therapist and through that, I just learned the value and the power of letting go, right? feel the feelings, feel what I'm feeling, but I eventually had to let it go and just know that I will be better after this is all over. So that was, that relieved a lot of the shame and the embarrassment um, that I was feeling. Um, That relieved, and I'm not going to say that I'm not angry still, but I... I just, I don't allow it. I don't allow myself to sit in that anger, right? I I feel it for the moment and I let it go. And my therapist has been so amazing where she said to me that it's okay to be anger, angry because you're angry. Your, your anger is what was protecting you. Your anger is what was driving you to some solution in this situation. So I've just come to, you know, a point that his intent was to destroy me. And I just refuse to let that happen. You know, I've been through so much adversity in my childhood, so much adversity in my adulthood, and I'd be doggone if I would let this person destroy me to the point where, you know, I don't see a bright future and that I cannot, you know, move forward. I just refuse to believe that. And I know that he's getting a ton of money from me and he's probably going to, you know, blow it, but I can't even worry about that. Honestly, I, I just, I have to let it go. And as far as the legal system goes and what you learned within that process that could help someone else, what would you say are like the biggest things, uh, mistakes that you made 
uh, that could be learned from? Yeah, so I would say mistake number one, and this came from my attorney early on, was that I should have had a prenuptial agreement. And the advice of the attorney, and based on my research and what I'm finding out now, is that more and more men are going after palimony. They're going after uh, financial benefits from women. The more women are successful and achieving more status, money in the workplace, a lot of men are taking advantage of that. And since I have started down this path and have listened to uh, podcasts and read articles, this is becoming more common than what we may think. So I would say my biggest learning is get a prenuptial agreement. No matter where you are financially, it can be, it, you can change it along the way. But especially if, if a woman is like myself and is established prior to meeting the person, I would say 100% do not enter into a any type of legal marriage or any type of legal arrangement with that person without having that prenuptial agreement in hand. The other thing I would say that I'm learning is trust your instinct. And I hear that a lot, you know, from uh, folks on the show, trust your internal instinct. It's not going to guide you wrong. And there was so many things that I knew from the beginning that was not right with him. You know, so many, the, the drinking, the being drunk at the, uh, the class reunion, I just. Well, well, well I'm going to say this. You did trust your instincts. I think you trusted them 100%. And this person just really um, wouldn't stop. Like at the beginning there. That person just wouldn't stop until you, they deadened your instinct because your instinct was dead on, spot on. He was relentless. Yes, I absolutely agree with you. He was relentless. I was flattered and excited and, you know, but again, I pushed through my instincts and did not allow my instincts to be the better judge in that situation. So besides the uh, trusting your gut, what are your final words of wisdom and advice for everyone? You know, my final words of wisdom is don't play around with listening to these narcs, their future faking, their promises of change. Don't play around with that. It's it's not going to change. Don't keep investing in years into a relationship that you hope that they're going to change and that things will get better. It won't. It's just going to get worse for you. Uh, and then, you know, finally, I would say forgive yourself. Despite 
everything that has happened to you is not your fault and you have to forgive yourself in order to move forward. That was like one of the biggest things that I just kept blaming myself. You know, I would just spend days and nights and, you know, weeks on end just kicking myself over, you know, this decision. But forgive yourself. Educate yourself well on what it is you're looking for so that when a counterfeit shows up, you're able to recognize that right away and push that person aside and move on and move into uh, your greatness and don't hold on to, you know, uh, decisions that you've made. I like to say that we don't make mistakes. We make decisions um, and we can move forward. Well, Lyric, I want to thank you for being here with me today with, uh, you know, telling your story. Your, your story is different in a lot of ways because of your boundaries. And I really wanted to, people to hear this story today because, you know, you had all of these things in there and this person was still able to get there. And just, you know, some people are so persistent that it pays off and that's what happened here and you you paid for it uh, literally you paid for it and, and you know you're going to help a lot of people here with you know all of your words of wisdom uh the lessons throughout the story so thank you so much for being here with me today thank you brandon and i certainly do uh pray and, and trust that it will help someone it will and from Lyric and me and I, whatever the proper grammar is, we hope you have a good night. <laughs>